welcome to the Copy Blogger Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It has been two weeks since Ethan and I have been together recording an episode. <laughs> so and like, like, forget how to do this. <laughs> Tim's got like a castaway beard now too for people who <laughs> who are who are not watching the video. It it looks like it's been ten years. <laughs> Yeah, bro. Let me let me tell you something too. Like, if you look into the camera a little bit, I got a couple of these little grays coming in. I never thought it would happen to me, bro. I never thought it would happen. I got there's only a few, you know. Wow. I'm not gray, but I got a few distinguished. Stragglers. Distinguished. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I can't see it for what it's worth, but that's always like unsettling. I'm getting it on the on the. What do you call it? I think your temples. Well, so you know on what's the funny sides though? of my head. I, had I have gray hair on my temples since I was yep. in high school. And like, I never went gray. Like there was a part of me when I was in high school that just thought maybe, you know how sometimes if you have a birthmark or something yeah. like on your head, it just turns gray. I, I always had them. And I always thought to myself, I don't know, maybe you just have like little freckles on the side of my head or something. And I haven't gotten any more gray there, which I'm lucky. And I still basically have all of my hair. I'm 36, yeah. you know, and I know a ton of people who lost all their hair by now, but sure. yeah, man, shit happens, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's good to see you again, man. It feels like it's been too long. We were joking about this before we hit record, but, and you know, what's funny too. We've never really put out, we should probably just address this now for people listening. Cause it occurred to me the other day, people listening to this might, it's been a few episodes back to back where it's like, maybe you and I talked, but then we're also doing interviews on the side. So we've run a couple of episodes or we might be running a couple episodes where we're not here together. And I feel like from the outside, we've said maybe once or twice, hey, we have big plans for the show. And then all of a sudden, it just starts showing up, me solo or you solo. So just to clarify for people, we're not splitting up. Like we, We continue to record every single weekend. What we've started doing is we also now record solo interviews in the middle of the week. So the plan is to continue the whole like Tim and Ethan show, which is great. That happens every single week. And we want to start publishing more episodes and in order to do that, we're going to start publishing like solo interviews that Tim and I do with interesting people in our networks. So if it seems like you haven't seen us together in a while, that's pretty much just because we had some funky stuff happen with recordings that we had to like recover from. Yeah. Uh, but the weekly recording sessions are still taking place and they're going to continue to take place. We're just adding more to the mix now. Uh, I think that's a great intro to what I think we're talking about today which is we we're taking this podcast seriously Uh, we've been pretty open about what we're doing ethan and i you and i jumped into this saying like let's do it let's just not think about it too hard and let's see where it goes make sure we have fun doing it and it's been a year later and i'm still having a blast and the show's really growing i think that i think which is cool is like we are definitely a few people's favorite podcast and doesn't have to be a lot of people my mom (laughs) my grandmother no 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 there's people who no you're actually our show that's true also i don't think my mom listens so (laughs) yeah my mom definitely don't listen and so we're on to something and yeah we want to increase volume i think that our dynamic is really important because that's the whole point of the show is we have an interesting lens to bring to what you would call content marketing, entrepreneurship, the business of the internet. But there's also some really cool people out there that are doing some really cool things. And and so we both decided that we're going to do two episodes a week. And one of those episodes is going to be interview format. We're going to swap back and forth between who does the interview. And then we're going to keep doing our weekly thing. And And on that note, the idea for this week's podcast is kind of building in public, I guess, is a good way to put it. You said that you had some ideas to talk about and you said, why don't we just do a show about it? And I said, that's weird because what if the ideas kind of suck and like that I have to like shoot a terrible down? idea? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what if it's a terrible idea? And you said, no, that's that's what I want. So, yeah, um, I'm all ears and, and I'm ready to dive in. Let me tee this up. So we're going to talk about this for a few minutes. I've got other things I want to talk about, too. You know what? Can I actually hit the brakes on that for a second? I, and I want to come back to the plans for the show and we'll hash it out live the exact exactly what you just set up but before we get to that there's a couple of like housekeeping things that i just wanted to throw out for people 
and just like maybe shorter form stuff that we touch on here every single episode. So let's let's wrap the show up with the plans for the future because we're going to talk about what the plan is moving into next year. We've got some ideas. We've got to bounce back and forth. We also want listeners' feedback on it. I think it'll be a good note to end on. Yeah. To start with, there's one other thing I wanted to say to you, man, which is like Happy Thanksgiving. I don't know if you know this about yourself, but I was trying to find one of your tweets recently. And it, you had said something about like, oh, I'm so grateful for X, Y, and Z. And so I just typed in like Tim Stoddard or I was, you know, whatever your handle is. And then the word grateful and like 57 tweets came up. You're probably the most grateful um, <laughs> influencer <laughs> anywhere on the internet. And I wanted to shout this out because it's Thanksgiving, but also because like genuinely, I admire that, man. I think. I don't know if this is something that you do intentionally, but it's pretty clear to anybody like me who randomly stumbles on it that like you you spend a lot of time thinking about what you're grateful for inside of this like life that you've built, which I think is kind of the definition of winning. You know, it's so easy to just get trapped in the constant pursuit of more. So as we come into this like holiday, I just wanted to say like for anybody out there, go do it. I literally do the exact same thing. Look up his Twitter handle along with the word grateful, you'll see what I'm com- what I'm saying. It's like it's dozens of tweets that you talk about this. Uh, I, that's definitely a compliment. Um, yeah, I'm grateful to be alive. I I really truly the God should have died four times off the top of my head. I'm always grateful to be alive, and <laughs> this reminds me of a, a real quick story. Me and my friends got hired to build a call center at a treatment center in South Florida called Destination Hope. And the only way we did it is we we demanded to have our own building so that we could set up our desk. When I say building, it was it was an office, our own unit, let's call it, so that we could set up our desks. And we're building a call center too. So it gets kind of ruckus, you know, like you don't want to be around all the administration and and so part of that deal was that we could have our own desks. And Sachs, my partner in Stadzi, is still my best friend. We talked about it a bunch of times. He left the office for a while. And so me and Butcher and Kat went to CVS and we bought like eight packets of post-it notes. And for about two hours, we covered his com- his entire desk and all of his walls and his computer and like everything that, that belonged to Brian Sachs and post-it notes. And there was a moment which I really never, ever forgot. And I think about it really often. Anytime I'm having a bad day, this pops into my head because uh, we were all like quiet, just methodically putting post-it notes. It was almost monotonous for a while. And it took us like an hour and a half. And it was quiet for maybe like 10 or 15 minutes. And then Butcher randomly just says, hey, guys, if there's ever a moment when you're having a bad day, I just want you to remember that we're getting paid to put post-it notes on Sax's desk right now. <laughs> And so like it really happens. Like if there's ever a moment I'm having a bad day, I was thinking to myself, like, huh, like I'm actually doing this right now and I need to be grateful. So uh yes, those tweets are sometimes reminders to be grateful if I'm having a bad day, but mostly I, I am very happy and very grateful to be me. So like you really made my day, man. Thank you. Seriously. My life is dope and I do dope shit. <laughs> Have you ever heard have you heard that story? I think it was like the moment Dave Chappelle knew Kanye was going to be a superstar, which now it's controversial to say both those names, but let's just pretend this is like whatever 2018 and <laughs> Chappelle tells this story about how he's like he's like how he knew Kanye was going to be huge. They were hanging out together and they were watching Chappelle's new special, I think, or something like that. And somebody calls Kanye on a phone and he answers his phone he goes, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like uh, hanging out with Dave Chappelle. And he goes, because uh, my life is dope and I do dope shit. And then he hung up. <laughs> <laughs> and then Chappelle's like, that's the moment I knew he was going to be huge. So Amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, what's next? Uh, well, I just wanted to call that out. And then just say like, yeah, uh, I, I learned from you, man. I I that struck me when I saw it. I was like, yeah, that, that feels like on brand for Tim, but also you talk about this stuff all the time. And I wanted, I mean, I won't embarrass you here by like talking about you too many, too, too long to you, but I learned a lot from our partnership. So I'm glad that we're going to extend this into the next year. One of the things that I pick up from you uh, related to the whole gratefulness thing is like, you talk a lot about what it means to have a rich life for yourself. You're like, Oh, like, 
you know, I'm grateful for my family and my and my house. And but you also have said in the past, like, you know, I will spend whatever I want on healthy food. It's part of my definition of a rich life. And those little things, you just kind of mentioned them offhand, but they have really sunk in for me over the course of the past year. And I'm thinking a lot more now about what my definitions are for that. I'm still not totally sure, but one thing I've been spending a lot more time with is like spending the first hour or two of the day just really uh, doing the things that like uh, I, I was going to say working out, but it's not really working out. Like I'll take my dog out for like a long hike in the morning. Yeah. And I I, tr- I really, really try not to sit down at my desk before 9 a.m. because I like your voice sort of echoed in my head. And I, at one point, maybe a week or so ago, I realized I'm like, you know, my career's going pretty well, but I'm at this crossroads where I could work a lot more. But really, I feel like what I need to start doing is focusing on building the sort of day that I that I, I keep thinking I want to work towards, yeah. you know? So yeah, dude, I learned from you, man. I learned from you. I appreciate that. Fun to have this partnership. And for people who maybe haven't realized this yet, this guy is the most grateful influencer on the web. <laughs> so a couple other things I want to point out. I have a story for today. Right. It's about a copywriter. So we'll get into that. I got a tool that I want to share with people. This actually ties in with a bunch of other conversations that we've had in the past. And then I want to get into some ideas. And I figured the ideas for the podcast, that'll probably be like a five or 10 minute conversation tops. But we wanted to pull everybody behind the scenes here to just show you like how we think through these kinds of things. Because we have to start making money from this show. And we're going to figure out ways to do it. uh, And we'll talk about some of that live. So first, let's talk about this copywriter. Have you ever heard of Howard Gossage? Nope. Okay. So this is kind of a fun follow-up to to the episode that just went live. Did it, did it go live today? It's my interview with yeah, Chris Wojcikowski. Okay. So the interview with Chris went live Friday the 18th. And for people who listen to that, you'll hear Chris actually mention just sort of offhand a copywriter named Howard Gossage. And he mentions him within the context of the work that he did to save the Grand Canyon. So Howard Gossage was kind of this cool dude. I'm just going to tell you the story because you probably haven't heard the conversation with Chris yet. He doesn't really go into detail. He just says, oh, there's this guy, Howard Gossage. He was a co- he was an ad man, and he decided to start using his powers for good. And so like, he worked with Sierra Club to um, help preserve the Redwoods. He helped sort of take down this plan to dam the Grand Canyon up and fill it with water. And that was it. He just mentioned it briefly in our show. But about halfway through this week, I was like, man. I'm kind of curious to learn more. So I started looking into this guy, Howard, and he was really fascinating, man. Here's a couple cool things he did. When he was a little kid, he decided to paddle down the Mississippi and he stopped and talked at radio stations all the way along the river and like stirred up this huge PR thing about this kid uh, paddling down the Mississippi like like Huck Finn. Then when he went to college, he started a newspaper. These are just like random little weird things that he did that kind of showed this was like a special person. He started a newspaper at college and charmed Walt Disney into illustrating the cover of it for free. And so you can actually <laughs> look this up. It's called the, uh, the, I think it was the kangaroo. Just like look up like college newspaper, the kangaroo. It'll come right up and you could see Disney's influence because it looks, it literally looks like a kangaroo version of Mickey Mouse. He started a clothing line with Picasso, he used to run his agency out of a uh, an old abandoned firehouse, and a whole bunch of like rebels from that day and age used to drop by, like uh, John Steinbeck and Tom Wolfe and Joan River, Buckminster Fuller. They all used to hang out at his agency's headquarters, and so he was just like a real troublemaker. And I wanted to talk through like one or two of his projects because I think he was a really interesting dude. I think he's somebody that people here would probably enjoy knowing a little bit more about. And I will get into it in a second. I just wanted to pause there for a second. Oh, and I'll say this too. You probably haven't heard the name. He was a contemporary of Ogilvy. So a lot of people know Ogilvy's name, but they haven't heard of Howard. But you've probably heard some of his quotes. For example, he's the guy who frequently said, actually... I'll paraphrase this a little bit, but it's like people don't read ads. They read what interests them. And sometimes it's an ad. You ever heard that quote? Yeah, I've heard that. That was Howard. 
So he was really famous for, or not famous, but well-known and well-respected in the ad world for a very unique type of advertising that really got readers involved, like interactively, long before there was an internet. And I can tell you a couple of examples of how he did that in a minute, but I just wanted to pause there and, and point out this cool dude that I had never heard of before. Cool. I'm actually really excited to to hear the ads. I know that you're giving me a chance to like reflect on it, but I, I kind of don't want to. I want you to keep going. I can't wait to hear these ads. <laughs> okay. So uh, like I mentioned, he was well known for creating, or I, so he's sort of a pioneer of like interactive advertising. Um, and what that really meant back in the day was ads that sort of like skirted the line. The, the, you didn't even realize, really realize they were ads when you interacted with them. So like one famous example is an ad campaign for Qantas Airlines, uh, right when they were first launched. And the idea was the headline on this is uh, be the first one on your block to win a kangaroo. The whole advertisement is for a brand new airline. It basically talks about how, oh, we just bought these shiny new planes. We're really happy with this new fleet of airplanes that we have. And we want your help naming the fleet of airplanes. So here's a little coupon. Cut it out. Write down the name that you think we should uh, have for these airplanes. And if you send it to us, whoever has the best name is going to win a kangaroo. And it's like, <laughs> first prize. Actually, I have it right here. It says, but it's like first prize is a live kangaroo. Second prize is a stuffed koala. And then like parentheses, it goes, uh, you wouldn't like a live koala. They're very picky eaters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's what he meant by like interactive ads. So really, sure. you're you're advertising this airline, right? But not really. What you're really doing is you're getting people interested with a line about kangaroos, right? Oh, I'm going to be the first person in my neighborhood to have a kangaroo. Like that's such an obscure thing to say. But you're getting them involved, right? What should, what should we name our airline fleet? And he did this over and over and over again. and. I don't know. It, it, it led to some really interesting things. So I when I said, I have a cool example of this that I just learned uh, two days ago. I've been really enjoying the Diary of a CEO podcast with this guy Stephen Bartlett. I generally avoid self development podcasts for reasons which, like I've I've talked about, but this guy is is great. He's like a master interviewer, and he's so young. I don't even know if he like took interview classes or if it's just natural to him. And so I've been learning, a, I've been listening to it first just to see how he gets his guests to talk so freely and openly about such vulnerable subjects, uh, but also because I really like it. And oh man, I, I, her name is blanking me. The CEO of Bumble. She was one of the Tinder girls. What the hell is her name? Bumble's a public company, by the way. It's a dating app that... Whitney uh, Heard. Yeah, yeah, Heard. There you go. And she popularize the app by making it so that the woman has to be the first one to make the move, she calls it. So either like you, you send a message to the guy or whatever it is, the women are completely in charge. And it's a great company, hugely successful. When she first started it, an interactive ad that she created, I thought this was so genius. Uh, she went to colleges and they made flyers that basically said, in this classroom, no, and they put the big red X's over it, and they put a, a Facebook logo and a Instagram logo. There, there was one other one. I can't remember exactly what it was. This was 10 years ago, so it was probably Vine or something like that. And then they put Bumble, and that's all it was. It wasn't even an ad. It just says, like, you, you, you're in this classroom. You can't, you can't interact on these apps. You have to pay oh, attention. And so it's Facebook, so Instagram. Smart. I think it was Vine and Bumble. And then they just put these all over the the classrooms. And and looking back at it, she's like, yeah, and it's probably littering. And you know, these days I would probably be frowned upon, but that's what I did. I was a, you know, I was that's a young twenty something so girl smart. trying to grow a company. And so, what do you think happened? Right? Everybody looks at these and they think, what the fuck is Bumble? And why can't I go there? You know, <laughs> like why am I not allowed to go there? And uh, a bunch of cool little tactics like that. So I when I, when I heard of it, I remember even thinking. Is that an ad? You know, I, the word that came to my mind was guerrilla. It's kind of like guerrilla marketing, but it's not necessarily because guerrilla marketing is is more like disruptive. I think, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff where you put 
like an implant in a, a bus station and people walk away with like logos in the back of their legs and stuff. That's more guerrilla marketing. Whereas this is like interactive advertising. It's a it's a call to action within the ad itself that makes you interact with it. So I, I, I think that's another great example. I think that's dope. Yeah, that is a great example. This is, this is like a little psychology twist there too, which is like you're yeah. automatically stacking this brand new thing up against you know the yeah. titans of the industry, which is so smart. I want to say I've seen somebody do that in like the fashion world too. Wasn't that how they launched um, Armani? I think they. I have no oh idea. man, I'll have to look this up for another a future episode. But I think, oh man, all my my advertising people are gonna hate this if I get the story wrong, but. I think it was Ogilvy that helped launch Armani and the way they did it was with a billboard that had the names of like three different famous fashion brands on it. And it was like something to the effect of like, which one of these is, how do you spell value? Something like that. But basically the idea was Armani was this like brand new brand. And it was the only one that nobody would know if it was put on a billboard alongside mm. these two other giants. And so by putting it up there alongside them, you're like all of a sudden saying, oh, these all three of these are the same thing. Oh, oh what do you sense. mean you don't know this third one? You're out of the loop somehow. Right. Yeah. And, then, and then it like the, you know, it, it's sort of becomes incumbent on the viewer to be like, oh, no, I, I totally know what that is. And they look it up. So that's that's so sharp, man. Yeah, it was sharp. Yeah. This dude had I want to tell a story of like. um his so he had a bunch of i don't even know how to describe this because it's like the what i keep thinking of is like it's advertising but it's one step to the left of advertising because really you're interacting with something but you don't even realize it's an ad at first so one example would be what i just said with like the kangaroo thing it's like this you're two steps removed from even realizing that you're being made aware of Qantas new airline right because you're reading something that's interesting but you're like, it doesn't even occur to you that there's an airline that's like pitching you on something. Uh, another example of this that he did, which is really uh, like, I think, famous in certain circles. Did I did I already mention that he launched a clothing line with Picasso? No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he launched a he launched a clothing line with Picasso, but the story actually starts earlier than that, because the clothing line with Picasso was sort of a last ditch effort after <laughs> an earlier thing that went wrong. So I've mentioned he's a little bit of a rebel. He was a little bit of like a, like a civic minded. They used to call him the Socrates of San Francisco because he liked to help out and stuff like that. So <laughs> there was a local radio station that was failing and he decided to throw them some ad budget from a client of his, uh, Rainier Brewing. Now, if people are listening to this and thinking geographically, they're going to think, okay, local radio station in San Francisco. Rainier Brewing is a Northwestern brewery, Mount Rainier, up in Seattle. How are those two things even connected? Well, here's what he did. Oh, and by the way, the radio station was like a a classical music radio station. So he gives them ad budget from his beer client 3,000 miles away in order to help keep them afloat. And the way that he did it was brilliant. Instead of just advertising Rainier brewing on a classical music radio station they created sweatshirts with the faces of classical musicians on them uh beethoven bach and one other guy and basically gave them to the radio station and said you know like give these away to listeners who want them or something like that they made a run of like 600 of these sort of rainier beethoven sweaters that was the ad campaign. It was one step to the left. You didn't even realize you were really interacting with a beer company. But they, you know, they gave him this ad budget. It uh, ended up sending out a whole bunch of sweaters. And it became so popular that he actually turned these sweaters into a business. So he owned a company that started making these Beethoven sweaters. And uh, after a while, and people in the fashion space would probably know more about this than I do, but they like, they became a real hot ticket item so much so that they started getting ripped off and he has a whole lawsuit over the Beethoven sweater, ultimately pulled the plug on it. But in this like pursuit of trying to find a way to create something that was truly unique in the fashion space, he decided the next thing that he was going to make was like going to be even more rare. And so him and his partner uh, landed the rights to reproduce, I think it was four different pieces of Picasso's art mm-hmm. on uh, sweaters and jackets. And I hadn't even realized this 
uh, about Picasso, but it was a time when he was alive, you know? So they, they flew to France, landed the rights and ended up producing like this very niche line of fashion that is Picasso's art reproduced on like jackets and sweaters and stuff like that. And again, whole huge advertising campaign built around that, which is like, uh, it, something like, you know, it used to be only walls could wear Picasso and now nice. you can too. Yeah. So just a super, super interesting guy. And I've been really enjoying looking into his work and kind of learning more about him. That's a blast. Yeah. I think that's all I had related to him. Yeah. The ads, the clothing line with Picasso. What's his and name I, again? Howard Gossage. And for people who are interested there's two books. I actually just ordered these. They're kind of tough to, or they're not tough to find. Everything's easy on Amazon. But let me make sure I get the actual the titles right real quick. So the, he never really passage. wrote a He never really wrote a book, and it's very difficult to find anything from him. I think it's his daughter sort of runs the website related to his name right now, where she like pieces together his ads and stuff. But for as influential as he was, and as good as he was at his work. He wasn't very prolific in terms of like sharing his ideas or his concepts. So you got to kind of hunt for stuff. But there's two things that are worth looking or I think they're worth looking. I just ordered them literally an hour ago. One is called The Book of Gossage, which I think is a collection of his ads and the responses to his ads. I've read elsewhere that like entire books have been created from the responses that people would mail in because that was. Again, his whole thing was like interactive advertising, right? Before that was a thing. So a lot of his ads had like cut out mail-in forms attached to them. So the Book of Gossage is one thing people could look at. And the other is uh, a book by Steve Harrison. It's called Changing the World is the Only Fit Work for a Grown Man. And it's a, it's a, a deeper dive on Gossage's work. But again, like uh, the things that I've mentioned are sort of just scratching the surface. He was directly responsible for making sure that the work he was largely responsible for making sure that we didn't dam and flood the entire Grand Canyon and cut down the last of the redwoods. I guess he helped with like some island that started a revolution too. Like it's just, I'm just super awesome. interested to learn more about him. Yeah. Even just the fact that, you know, like John Steinbeck used to hang out at his office. Like that's yeah. cool enough for me, you know? He looks so cool. Yeah. He looks like the man. Uh-huh. Life was cut too short. Leukemia got him. So. Damn. Yeah, but apparently right up to the end it was a total baller. So people should check him out and I think his name should be should be shared more. Okay, so that was a cool thing I wanted to share. Amazing. And then one other thing that I just wanted to share just in the course of sort of like the travels for the week is a tool called uh Passion Fruit. Have you seen this yet? Never. How do okay. you find all of these tools, man? I'm I'm constantly like 10 steps behind you. Yeah, well maybe if you uh stopped being so grateful all the time and enjoying your days <laughs> and putting a couple more 18-hour days at the computer, <laughs> grinding away, you might <laughs> find these things early too. No, I found them. So I, how did I find them? Their founders are really interesting. Use passionfruit.com. This can't be it. We found the no. best marketing specialist, so you don't have to. No, that sounds interesting. But no, this is pa- passionfruit.xyz. But I... Had a chance to meet up with their found one of their found. I think it's there's two founders. One founder, her name's uh, Jennifer Fan, P H A N, and I not sure who her co-founder is, but they're. Are you I sure? Passionfruit.xyz is for sale. You're probably spelling spelling it wrong. How do you spell passion fruit? P A S S I O N F R U I T dot X Y Z. Yep. Sorry. So it's. <laughs> I'm glad you called that out. <laughs> I didn't even realize this. It's. It's uh, fruit spelled F-R-O-O-T. And until you <laughs> mentioned that, I didn't even realize that that's not how you spell fruit. <laughs> so we will link to everything in the show notes to make this easy for people. That is but so funny. Here's the deal. <laughs> this is a no, that's how you spell fruit. <laughs> it didn't even strike me as like when I looked at this, the thing that caught my eye was like, oh, dot X, Y, Z. You don't see a lot of those. <laughs> like. That oh, was man, what that stood out to me about amazing. the URL. But what it is, is it's a tool that can be used to power your creator business. So like we've done a thing before here about how like certain creators sell their ads, like automating ad sale flows using like an e-com store yeah. or calendar or something like that. And this whole tool is designed to do exactly that. 
So it's pretty slick. I'm still kind of playing with it or playing with examples. Ali, what's his name? Ali Abdul. Ali Abdul. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. at him right now. Uh, he's yeah, really cool. He's, I like he's, his stuff. Yeah, he's using he's using an example of it. I'm not sure if he's an investor or if, if he was an early adopter or what, but just a cool tool I think people should should check out. I think it's still early, so I'm not sure how easy it is to get access, but <laughs> Jennifer showed me this. And dude, this is going to make selling sponsorships and ads a lot easier for people. Like it's, it, it's, um, basically provides the whole client facing side of the equation so that you can see, like, if I, if I want to sell you an ad on my Facebook channel, like I can keep the channel updated there, show you how big it is, show you what the engagement is, show you what the pricing is. And then you can book, upload all your creative assets and stuff like that. And then on the back side, it manages everything from the, creative assets to the ad calendar, which I think is one of the things that is more like that people don't think about how tricky that is when they decide to start ads, selling ads for something, you know, there's not really a lot of good tools out there for it. And if you're selling across multiple channels, like at at the hustle, I think we mentioned this on one of our other shows, or maybe it was somewhere else. We used to use a spreadsheet. Like we literally had a Google sheet. That's what I do. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's complicated. And like for somebody who's already managing a whole bunch of content creation as a solo creator, it's a major pain in the ass. This is one of the reasons why I tell people, I'm like, you don't even want to start monetizing until for like a newsletter until you hit like 50 to 70,000 readers. It's because all this stuff takes so much time to manage that like usually you don't want to monetize any of it until you have a big enough audience that you can make enough money that you can potentially bring in people to help. Or like, yeah, basically people to help. But I just thought it was cool. Uh, a lot of tools like this are coming out that are going to start making this a lot easier. So wanted to. Yeah, you know out. how I feel about this. Like somebody's going to win this game, mm-hmm. and it's going to be needed because media. It's it's not just media. So reel me in here. Don't don't let me go too far off into the deep end with this one. But I was even thinking the other day about how energy is going to be just like the creator world where, you know, if you think about the fact that social media and even email to a larger extent has pulled attention away from like the four major networks, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what, what happens when five or 10 years from now, when we all have solar panels on our roofs and like every single one of us is our own autonomous like energy provider for ourselves. And so like the whole entire world is going to get more and more and more individualized where like I am my own media company. I am my own like energy provider. I am my own, you know, like everything. And it's the long tail in every respect, which is, is just going to continue to fraction out and fraction out. And so. Yeah, that was like a little thought experiment I was going through the other day, but I, I think it's important because even when that happens, the money to be made there is still in the picks and the shovels, you yeah. know? So somebody's going to have to actually put the solar panels on the roof. Somebody's going to actually have to wire the thing, you know? Somebody's going to have to figure out how to install it. And so I truly, truly think that software and like entrepreneurship over the next five to 10 years isn't going to be in the infrastructure. It's not going to be like the people building the cities of the internet. It's going to be people building the picks and the shovels of the internet because the, the cities are already built. And in fact, I know this is like a really esoteric analogy, but people are, are leaving the cities of the internet. You know, people are, are doing their own thing. They're coming up with their own email lists and, and being their own independent media companies. And so now like we don't need those big infrastructure ports anymore. We need the the little tools that help us manage our own media company. And uh I just I've been seeing examples of this everywhere and with Passion Fruit in particular, this just obviously really got me going about it, but I think I think this game is so important because because advertisers like newsletters because newsletters are tribes and you know that you're speaking to like a really particular community. And so you you have a, a really good feeling that your product is going to convert well on a newsletter. 
mm. considering the audience of the newsletter. And so advertisers win, the subscribers win, and the media company, aka the person wins. And so like, it's a real perfect fit. But what's missing through this whole thing is the picks and the shovels. And so, and so, yeah, you're making me think that uh, what you're like, what you're talking about is decentralization. Totally. Right? And, and I don't want to go down the crypto rabbit hole. No, but that's because, different. right. But, you know, like you said, with um, taking any, say, service or commodity or something like that and splitting it out, that's decentralization. And I, I think we are going through an era where that's becoming more popular. You know what this makes me think, though, with like the like, so obviously for passion fruit, they're like they're targeting creators right out of the gate. I've been thinking a lot about this. It's pretty common to say these days, everybody's a media company. Like every company is a media company. That's become a more and more common thing to say. What's interesting, though, is that not every company monetizes like a media company yet. And there's a lot of opportunity there for people who 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 aren't, but like, but should. And what I mean by this is like the simple, what I mean by this is like e-com companies. Yeah. Huckberry, right? They sell shirts, but they've got a huge email list. Why are they not advertising on top of their e-com newsletters? You know, like why not sell ads to uh, like adjacent types of companies inside of your e-com newsletter i don't know i suppose that's a math game you think you think it would cannibalize like purchases on the e-com stuff i have no idea it could it could i think that i think the problem that everybody being a media company is going to turn into basically the the creator problem is that creators want to make stuff and they have no idea how to make money from it and so they're going to be so dependent on companies like Passion Fruit and on, you know, like newsletter ad networks, which is fine, by the way. But eventually those people are going to run into the same problem as bloggers ran into with Google AdWords, where there's just not going to be enough revenue because all the clicks are going to be so spread out through a gazillion different eyeballs of attention. And so I still firmly, firmly believe, and I mean this with all my heart. In fact, I, w- I was actually stirring something up to possibly talk about this in in next week's episode but but i think there's a huge opportunity to create like a fund or like a studio that teaches or maybe even just does it for creators but turns creators into actual entrepreneurs and mm-hmm. figures out how to make a product that a creator could sell to their audience as opposed to the creator being handcuffed by the ad networks and you know the Google AdWords of the world. Let's just call it the Google AdWords of the world, so that they can actually make a, a much bigger return on their money. Because the fact is, man, I love what you say about that, but but very few people are going to get fifty thousand email subscribers. Most of them are going to get anywhere seven, fifteen, maybe twenty thousand. You right. know, and so well, that's what I, yeah. Sorry, that's that's a whole other conversation too, which is that like the economics on monetizing your following as a creator are changing as well. You don't necessarily need 50 to 70,000 the way that you used to, especially if you make some smart decisions about who it is you're targeting. But yeah, I I totally agree. There's going to be a lot like this whole notion that the media game is being broken open is pretty interesting. And I I, I know I that agree. we've not seen the full effects of that yet. But it's just like I'll tell you the the thing that actually got me thinking about this in the first place was PR. I was I was I was um sort of observing a conversation about PR inside of like an entrepreneurship group. And uh people were going back and forth about like what is the best way to get media attention. And I'm like, this is actually kind of funny because I write, I, I write for a living. So uh, about businesses. So we get pitched and I've kind of seen this from both sides. And I got to tell you, man, the people that I write about the most, when you when you talk about PR, there's a whole conversation that takes place there where people basically say, okay, here's how you land PR. Yeah. First, you go find a whole list of journalists that write about a topic related to your thing. Then you come up with some really great story ideas for them. Then you reach out to every single one individually. And like, yeah, that can work. But when I look back at the last three years, I have never 
take an action on one of those pitches. And there's a few reasons for it. One is there's no journalist alive right now that's looking for ideas. Zero. Zero. Every single one has more ideas than they could possibly write and not enough hours in the day, right? So you have to be incredibly lucky in order for your pitch to like perfectly overlap with what they're interested in, what they need, the timing, all that kind of thing. But more importantly, it's like for me as a writer, the people that I care about most are my audience. And so the companies that I've written about the most, they're not actually people who've pitched me at all. They're people who've gone into my community. Yeah. And been really helpful there. So like I was thinking to myself, I'm like, there's this whole other type of PR that nobody talks about that I'm just going to call like community-based PR, which is if you want eyeballs, figure out who you want to write about you, like go into their community and just start delivering a ton of value because it's going to, you're going to stand out immediately as opposed to trying to pitch a specific journalist. And then as I was thinking about that, that's where I came to this other idea where I'm like, and that's not even just limited to traditional media brands. It's anybody who has an email list right now. If it's related to your industry, you could benefit from them writing about you. So like Huckberry comes to mind for me a lot as a brand where it's like, if you you end up in the Huckberry newsletter, that's a significant placement, even though it's not like New York Times, you know, if that's your realm. It can it can really drive a ton of attention your way. So this whole concept of like community driven PR and not being too narrow in how you think about like media companies, I think is gonna be really important moving into the future. All right. Well, we're we are almost at time here. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground, but I did almost I, I yeah. have a a quick add-on with that as well. Go for it. And then we gotta talk I, about the pod. Yeah, I still want to talk about the show. So this is only gonna be two minutes. I just wanted to to Double down on what you said. With Sober Nation in particular, I get gazillions of emails about people coming up with some like brand new recovery technique that they want to talk about. I've never, ever in 10 years written a story about them. Never. It was just this morning I got some guy on Twitter who follows me and I even checked out his page. It's like, oh, this guy's doing all the right stuff. And I felt bad because I want to encourage people to like make those cold outreaches because something always comes from them, but it's never like a one hitch close yep. on cold pitches. There has to be a relationship. And so I got a DM from this guy saying like, Hey, I wrote this thread. I'd love for you to check it out. And like, I didn't just because it annoyed me. It might even be a great thread. I- I'm not sure. I have no idea. And so I don't, I don't want to say this to disencourage people to reach out. I'm I'm saying that the relationship is really really what matters. So whether mm-hmm. it's community as you call it, you know, whether it's just interacting with people, everything you said there's so many things I want to go on top of. So the blank page, my personal newsletter, right? I got 1200 subscribers to this thing and I'm already making 2 grand a month from it. And granted it's a daily newsletter, so there's a lot of impressions that get out, but I, there's just I just put five sponsor links on the bottom of it. I don't even have five. Yeah, I only have two. I, I'm I'm adding that in to say that if you're one of the people listening to this, thinking to yourselves like, "There's no way I can get fifty thousand," and then and then you said the game of media is is totally changing and being decentralized. Like, yes, you can still be decentralized and build a totally good business from it. And I also say that because the only time I've ever written about people. And like highlighted people was simply because I had an interaction with somebody that I really, really liked and it made me feel good. And so those aren't even ads that I put out. Those are just me writing about somebody and like trying to throw them a bone because I think it's cool what they're doing. And so all the things that you were saying there in the back of my mind, I was thinking like, yes, 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 that's the way to do it. And I know that's the way to do it because I've been doing the same thing without even thinking about it. So, um, so I just wanted to like really highlight what you said and double down on it. Yeah, I'm glad you called out the 50,000 thing too. So for caveat for people, because I realize I say this quite often and then I, I never really notice it when I say it. Uh, but then I come away and realize that can be disheartening for people. So the caveat there is if you look at the research that I've published, where that 50,000 number comes from research into seven-figure newsletters. And specifically, they're seven-figure newsletters that are pretty general, which means they're not really like you can monetize well below that point. 
you can build a really successful business with a much smaller list than that. I'm glad you called that out because I always forget to mention that. The sort of like general industry benchmark for building a million dollar newsletter is like 50 to 70,000 is where it's really smart to start monetizing. Yeah. But that has that has a lot to do with like CPMs, open rates, how many emails you ship. So it's a basic number that I throw out to people, but very important to realize that yeah, you can absolutely build a successful business that is on a smaller list than that. And I'm not sure. Yeah, we've definitely talked here about the guy who's got that 1,000 person list. That oh yeah, is doing yeah, six yeah. figures. So I'm glad you mentioned that. The other thing I would just say for people who are thinking about this community based outreach thing, as somebody who manages communities, in some cases quite large communities like our trends communities, somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people in that Facebook group. The interesting thing about communities everywhere, all communities follow this, is that there is an incredibly low percentage of the group that's actively engaged at any given time. And so one of the best ways that you can get yourself noticed by a company is to go into, into their community and just be very active and start producing a lot of really valuable ideas for the people in the community. Like, like just pretend in your head, like I'm going to be the new community manager for this group and just go in there and start delivering stuff because I'm telling you, I've been behind the scenes at a bunch of different companies. You will absolutely, the people at the company will know your name very quickly. It stands out very fast, like a couple of days of consistent engagement at a high level. And Community managers, moderators, all those types of people are going to start to know who you are and mention you. So if you want to start to build a relationship, and I'm glad you zeroed in on the relationship side of the thing too, because that is kind of the basis of all the stuff we're talking about here. Yeah, just know that like you don't have to cold pitch people via email. Just go start interacting and and really bring your A game uh, and you're going to stand out immediately because it just doesn't happen that often. All right, let's talk about how to get rich. So um, Great. I love richer, this. richer. <laughs> I like that because I, uh, well, I mentioned it earlier, but I think it's actually really important to define what you mean by a rich life. And I think you do a cool job of that. But for people listening to this, one of the goals for next year is to, actually, I'm not even sure we've really defined this well, but we're going to start monetizing the podcast in some way. And so one one of the conversations, we wanted to have this conversation on air for a few reasons. One to get your feedback so you guys can tweet at us and let us, let us know what you think because you're part of this as well. Uh, but also just to kind of show you like how this happens because the podcast is doing pretty well. Uh, it's still somewhat small, but like, what are we doing? We're doing like uh, 2,500 downloads. Uh, is it a month, a week? What are, do you, Have you looked at the numbers recently? 20, 27,000 27, downloads a month. Let me make sure that's true. That seems really high. No, that's it. Per month, 27,000 per month. Yeah. That's a lot. So I'm pulling up the dashboard now. And that's, let's see, last 30 days. Where do you get that number? I was always going all time. Okay. And then monthly. And Perfect. if you go all time and on monthly, uh, well, it takes a long time. But so in October 18th till November 17th, we've had 30,000. Yeah, man. Wow. We're doing it. (laughs) 30,000 plays over the last month. So thank you to everybody listening to this. You're you're making our day. Okay. So that's a lot. I'm so glad that's true because you really made me second guess myself. And I was like, no, (laughs) because I'm always sending the numbers to Ethan. And Ethan's like, stop looking at the numbers. Just make the best podcast. And I'm like, I can't. I can't. That's- and so I, I have refrained for the past like three weeks since Ethan gave me my intervention and uh, <laughs> coming back in here. And yeah, this is the best. This is the best 30 days that that we've had since we started doing this for sure. Yeah. 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 It's up 50% from July. That's pretty cool. So back in July, we were doing about 20,000 plays a month. That's awesome. And then if we look way back in time, so the, the for everybody listening to this, the number to beat is 51,500. So that's like, what uh, obviously, before Tim and I took over the show, Copyblogger had a podcast, very successful. And that was about, at, at the point that we took over, there's like a little spike here at 51,005. 
I think that's where we transitioned the data onto Anchor. So we don't have any data from earlier than that. So Correct. that's the number to beat. As far as we're concerned, that is once once we once we surpass that, uh, we'll celebrate. But the podcast is good. Thirty thousand downloads a month. That's a top one percent podcast. That's like a, a sizable show. It's still small as uh, compared to something like My First Million, which is doing I think about three million downloads a month across all their channels. But it's respectable. That's a cool. That's a cool number. So, in order to create the show, there's a certain amount that goes into it, right? Like we pay for the website, and we pay for editing. Thinking about paying to have video clips cut up next year, and so there's some just some considerations that go into that, making sure that the show is sustainable, and then eventually, obviously, like everybody likes to make money from stuff like this, so potentially profitable. And the question that Tim and I have is like, okay, well, how do we do that, right? Because we have a few options. What are we going to invest in next year? What's worth our time? And then how do you actually monetize in a way that's best for the show, for the audience, everything? So my here's my stance on this. Tim is looking sideways at something. So are you oh, like a I'm here. Something? No, I was oh, just okay. looking at something on my desk. Thought I said something that was like, <laughs> wait, what? Here's my stance on this. I have two ideas or I have two thoughts about this and they sort of dictate the direction that I think we should go. One, I don't think it's worth it to cut up video clips. I think this is really controversial. A lot of people would tell me that I'm crazy for saying this, but everybody that I've talked to has basically said that, yes, video clips help with discoverability. They don't seem to produce any significant impact on subscribers. So it's like, well, in my mind, it's a significant amount of money just to get discovered. If the show is just going to continue growing at its existing speed anyways, I would much rather just lean into the audience and like keep building the relationship there. So if it were me, and by the way, for people listening, Tim's the one who pays for all of this. So it's not me. <laughs> but but um, but if it were me, I would probably continue paying for editing. I would not pay for clips. And second part, I think, I think advertising is ruining podcasts. And so rather than going the ad route, I think we should create some paid, some cool ass paid products that people in the audience would like and then monetize through those. Those are my two ideas. Tell me what you think. And then like, let's just kind of bounce it back and forth a little bit because we're just honestly like we're talking through this now. So we don't actually know what the outcome is going to be. You may be surprised. I agree with both of those things. So I'm... I'm going to do the clips as an experiment. I've been enjoying social media this last year, and I've been really surprised at how well it has been growing my personal email list. So I'm looking at the clips as a way to generate some Instagram content on my account and hopefully grow the podcast. I, I really loved the podcast with Danny Miranda. I thought about it a lot and I even did some deep dives onto what he was doing. And I'm totally convinced that his clips do a good job of growing his social media accounts. I don't think they do a good job of growing his podcast at all. I don't think it has anything to do with him. I think it's just sort of the nature of podcasts. I think that podcast is, it's a commitment, right? And it's, It'll happen where you see a clip and you say, oh, I got to check that out. But almost all of the podcasts that I listen to, I listen to because somebody told me to listen to it. Almost always. And what's interesting is usually it's through text message. It's usually somebody that says like, hey, I, I think that you'll really like this episode. You should check this out. And they'll text me a link on Spotify. And so I was, I've been thinking about that. Yeah, that's interesting. So, So, and here's... On this note, here's what else I'm I'm seeing. The republishing of tweets on my Instagram so far is way more effective at generating clicks to the link in the bio on my Instagram account than the clips are. So I'm going to check. I'm going to see. Who knows? I think it has to do with the scrolling because like... What I do is I take all a bunch of tweets at once and then I put them as like a carousel. And I think yeah. the fact that people will flip through it hikes up the algorithm a little bit. 
I don't know. These are just things that I'm experimenting with. So I don't personally think that the clips are going to grow the podcast. I think the clips are going to grow my Instagram account. And I don't think they're going to grow them that much. But fuck it. I'm going to fuck around and find out. Yo. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I'm all for selling products to the podcast. All for it. I think having a show without advertising is so cool. It's the, it's the main reason why the only podcast I really listen to is the All In podcast. Because they don't have any ads on it. The problem, and this really is the problem, is that I'm relaunching Copyblogger Academy. I think sometimes of turning the blog posts on the timstods.com as ebooks. Sometimes I read those things and I'm like, man, this is like so good. And I'm not even saying that to value myself. I'm saying it like I would appreciate this information if I were just starting out. You know, like it's so tactical. I'm like a very tactical writer in that way. And so I've toyed with the idea of turning those blog posts into ebooks because other than that, there's no way that we're going to have the bandwidth to generate a product. Like there's just no way. And so I'm a little bit impatient and I don't know how willing I am to wait like six months when I could just slightly irritate people. But they're all they're going to do is fast forward the 15 seconds, like six or seven times to get to the podcast anyway. And so that's that's the debate I have in my mind about should we put ads on it or should we just put products on it? Yeah, I think that it makes sense. And I've thought about this too, because I'm like, I think we could put together a really cool product. I'm not sure what it would be. People listening to this, maybe they could tell us what they'd want. For me, I'm thinking like we could put together something about... Actually, I think you could put together a bunch. The model that I use for this is Mind Pump. You ever listen to their podcast? Uh, my wife does. I think it's really great. Actually, that's interesting. It's interesting that your wife likes it because it's like four or three dudes that talk about fitness. They're the bros. As soon as I hear them, she listens to it. <laughs> um, she's got an Instagram channel where she does a bunch of cool uh, cooking stuff. And so every time I, I, I hear see her in the kitchen doing stuff with food, I hear them. I was like, oh, you listen to the bros? The bros? <laughs> yeah, they, well, they are the fitness bros. <laughs> when I first heard about it, I thought that's like, I, I was like, man like three dudes just talking about fitness. this is going to be such a meathead podcast. It's so good. I they're started really listening smart. to it recently. Yeah, they're they're very smart. They all come from different backgrounds. I think they're very well spoken. They tackle like interesting topics that go beyond fitness. I think I, I really, really enjoyed it. But the way that they do it is they have a combination. So they'll talk about they'll they'll do sponsors. They also have a whole series of fitness programs. Yeah. And then like, basically they run them side by side. So they'll do, they'll be a sponsor, but then they'll also be a, like, Hey, one of our products is on sale this week, or they'll mention their products or they'll have listeners call in and they're like, Oh, you know, you're facing this problem. We're going to send you this product that we have for free. So what I really love about what they've built is that they've, I think that they've got a very good idea of what it is their listeners are working through and they built products around all that. And I think that's cool because it gives you kind of like a long-term way to like a, a long-term way to keep interacting with the audience, solve problems, to 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 generate revenue. But also it's like you have to be real clear about what your listeners' problems are in order to create something that you're gonna sell. Cause like yeah. you don't want to sell one copy, you know? It's gotta be like and and to me, maybe the copy blogger academy is an example of that, but I was trying to think of like what else. What else is it that our listeners are constantly doing that is popular enough and enough of a pain point and that we have enough to say about that we could put products around the same way that, that the mind pump guys do? I'm not sure I have an answer for that yet. So I hear you when you say like, in terms of timing, maybe ads are kind of like required in the meantime. And maybe it's like a, maybe it's a blended response, but here's what I like long-term when I think about this. I would want to be in a place, and I'm sure you agree with this. I'm not even saying anything that's controversial, but I would want us to be in a place where we are incredibly picky about the ads that we run. Because the thing that I keep running into, and it just like it's it feels like it's just undermining the podcast movement, is I'll be listening to a really important conversation, and then all of a sudden they'll cut away and they'll be like, This episode's brought to you by Manscaped. Like, want to shave your balls? Like <laughs> manscaped now back to our conversation on suicide it's like i i feel like the advertisers that are leaning into podcasting are not always very well equated with the conversation that you're trying to have with your listeners and i don't really want this show to have to go that direction i would rather 
you know, be able to be super picky. And I think having the blended like product plus advertisers might be the way to do that because eventually the product could generate enough income to support the show. And then like advertisers are the, uh, what would you call that? The icing on the cake. And then you can just be super picky about who you choose. I don't know. That's how I think about it. That makes sense. I think, I think about it very similarly. Like, I don't have any desire to put man's manscaping <laughs> on the podcast. Who was the other advertiser you were trashing the other day? Uh, oh, Mighty Networks. Oh, Mighty Networks. They'll yeah, never they buy advertising with us now. Yeah, um, I think the trick is, and this is why I have gravitated towards directories, and maybe this something. This is something else to think about. But you need a digital model that monetizes itself. And so there's a part of me that thinks having like a writer's job board or having some kind of writer's directory could work because let's say that every single episode we, we, the, the, so, but here's the actual problem with that. Okay. Let me finish my thought. Let's say every episode, what we do is we, we do a quick highlight on one of the writers that signed up for our job board. It's like, Hey, are you, are, are you looking for a, a talented writer? please go to copybloggerpod.jobboard.com, whatever. But the problem is the people that advertise, the people that pay you for job boards are the actual companies. And the companies that want to find the writers aren't going to do that. They're just going to go around. Um, I've, I, there's one job board I, I saw that was making some money and uh, Pomp, who's not really a friend of mine, is like a Twitter friend of mine, um, is he had a crypto job board that was succeeding really, really well. But I also think so much of that was timing, whereas we don't necessarily have that timing. So it doesn't have to be a job board, but like some kind of business where you build the infrastructure and then people continuously sign up to be a part of it, not necessarily to buy a product or to buy a program, but just to be listed on it. Yeah, those are just business models that have worked really, really well for me, which is one of the reasons why I like local media sites so much, because you can do the same thing. You just create the content to drive the awareness to like the party. And then people basically pay to be in the party. Right. So like we have the promotion machine. What's our party? And then like what's the five dollar entry fee to get into the fucking kegger? You know, like that's what we need. We need to figure out a kegger. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think a lot about Tim Ferris for this too. So Tim ran this experiment i guess it was like three years ago now. yeah i remember but his experiment failed yeah he ended well that's why i wanted to mention it though is because he ended advertising and instead went to like a listener supported model and uh, apparently it like didn't make anywhere near as much as he could on ads and he was basically told by his audience he's like well actually i don't mind the ads because i trust your judgment on stuff and like i want to hear the stuff that you recommend so I think he's put himself in a position where not only does is he able to be picky about advertisers, but he's also picky about show structure. Like I think I keep trying to come down. I, I try to peel back the layers and understand what it is that I really hate about advertising in podcasts right now. And I think it's a couple things. One, I think advertisers that don't feel like they're aligned with what the show is about. And like, man, I'm, it's kind of a cheap shot at Manscaped, but like this happens across the board. It, there's a lot of people who are testing advertising in podcasts right now. And I feel like podcasters do their listeners a, a disservice by just taking anybody who comes along. Yeah. And so I would want to avoid that, but I'm not necessarily against ads in general. Like, cause there's stuff that I use that I love and I would love to promote and would be totally fine promoting especially if we hear from our listeners that they're like actually i would like your your you know i don't mind ads i do like your judgment sell me stuff right If if that's something that people want i'm into it but i think just being thoughtful about the approach there and like really the only thing is don't don't accept everybody like i don't want to do an ad read for somebody that i've never used before and then I think if we're just thoughtful about where do you put the ads in the show so that it doesn't ruin the experience. Because right now Spotify is doing this thing, man, where it's like kicking ads like right into the middle of yeah. – the com- There's like an algorithm dude. that literally like you upload the episode 
yeah. and then the algorithm it's it's through anchor actually and Is then it? the algorithms like i guess the machine learning finds like a pause in the show and it's very abrupt so like you can tell it throws you off and then the yeah. ad read that is pre-recorded that that Spotify kind of puts in there. But you know what, man? Um, I got to go. But I think this is, I think you really, really touched something right here, which could be cool. You know what Tim Ferriss does that is why his ads are worth so much? It's because his podcast and his blog and his newsletter are all the same thing. And so if you buy an ad on one, you buy an ad on all of them. And I bet you that the ad conversion on his newsletter is fucking ridiculous. I bet you it is so high. I get, I bet you like the majority of his newsletter comes from his podcast, but most of his revenue comes from the ads through his email list. That's an interesting. Wow. I hadn't thought about that before. You're probably right because it's so much easier to get somebody it's to so click rather than type in a yeah. URL. Because, and his blog too, like Tim Ferriss' blog is really old school. Like every single episode is the podcast with the show notes and then the list of sponsors underneath it. Yep. Yeah. So Same maybe that's YouTube what we too. do. We just that's combine a really all interesting point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a, like an engine. And then and then and then in terms of like pricing, you're pricing for like a much bigger thing. It's not just a podcast. It's like, hey, this is this is the reach of this influence engine. Yeah. And and then you're able to yeah, it's kind of a win-win. It's win for advertisers, win for you. And as long as those allow you to be pickier about the ads, then it's a win for listeners too. Yeah. We'll have to think about that. Some Let's more. chew on that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let us know what you think. Tweet us, tweet at us if you have an idea or if you're like vehemently opposed to one of these things. Holler at us, let us know. Uh, uh yeah. You're probably gonna have to pay us a bunch of money to avoid doing anything, but um <laughs> something's <laughs> happening. Yeah. You can't stop me. <laughs> yeah. Uh but but uh thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of this. Uh check out the copybloggerpod.com if you want to sign up for the email list and get a copy of what's it called? The Killer and the Poet. I keep wanting to say Fighter and the Kid, but that's a that's a different podcast. Killer and the Poet, yeah. <laughs> Killer and the Poet. Copybloggerpod.com. Check it out. All right, we'll see you next week. See you guys, appreciate it. 